Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's 50 years this year since the end of America's involvement in the Vietnam War. And we remember those that were lost and celebrate the over 20,000 Vietnam War veterans and their families who live in eastern Connecticut. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It was 50 years ago on March 29, 1973, that the last U.S. combat troops left South Vietnam, ending direct U.S. military involvement in the Vietnam War. At the time, the U.S. involvement in the conflict was hotly debated here in the U.S., becoming increasingly angry and divisive in nature. And caught in the middle of all of this were the nation's service members, returning from Vietnam to a deafening silence at home of ingratitude and disrespect for merely carrying out the then-administration's wishes. Over the years, attitudes towards our Vietnam veterans have slowly changed, and finally their sacrifice and service has been recognised as March 29th has been officially designated as National Vietnam War Veterans Day. Here now are four Vietnam War veterans' stories. Our Navy was greatly involved across the globe during the Vietnam era. Much of the focus on deterring the spread of communism and in the influence of the Soviet Union and China. To offer a reflection on that service, we are pleased to have joining us a local Navy veteran who continues to serve uh, through his work with the Richard E. Hurrigan Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 594, the Vietnam Veterans America Chapter 270, and the Norwich Area Veterans Council. So please join me in welcoming recent class of 2022 Connecticut Veterans Hall of Fame inductee, John Wagner. I enlisted in the Navy in May of 1965 and after attending many Navy schools, in February of 1967, I went on board a destroyer, a gearing class destroyer from World War II, the USS Stickle DD-888. The ship had just come back from Vietnam and was in the yards in Boston, so I had to wait for it till it came to Newport, where I was stationed. The first place we went was to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to recertify the ship in gunnery and engineering and all of those different aspects in a destroyer squadron. In May of 1967, we went on a four-month ASW cruise in the North Atlantic. Up there, we were looking and playing games with Russians. We got buzzed by Russian bombers, chased by Russian patrol boats, and we were looking for their submarines, and it was a hunter-killer game. We operated with the navies from Norway, Denmark, West Germany, Great Britain, and France. After leaving the North Atlantic exercises, we were sent into the Med. The Met at that time, the Russian submarine activity had increased several hundred percent. 
And we were sent with an ASW task force to find out where they went. Now, our task force is usually carriers, destroyers, and actually people don't realize that there's submarines underneath us. So we were sent in June to the Med. We had just crossed into the Med, going through the Straits of the Gibraltar, and June 8th, 1967, I don't know if anybody remembers that date, that was the day the USS Liberty was attacked in the Med by the Israelis. We were there when that happened. And all I can say at that time is that we were under alert, not knowing what was going to happen. The USS Liberty was AGTR number five. She was in international waters attacked on the afternoon of June 8th by the fighters and torpedo boats of the Israeli Navy. 34 were killed, 171 injured, and the ship was severely damaged. The ship was stabilized and it was towed to Valletta, Malta for repairs. While we were there, we hit Malta on the way out and we actually saw the Liberty in one of the side ports being worked on to be stabilized to go back to Norfolk where she was returned on July 27, 1967. So we entered the Med and we did a lot of exercises looking for Russian submarines. They found us and we found them, especially the diesel boats because they had to come up to charge their batteries. Where they were going, what we found out was they had no warm water ports. They had huge submarine tenders anchored in international waters where they would go in, replenish, and go back out. When we weren't involved with overseas, we did a lot of ASW exercises up and down the coast from Newport area down into Puerto Rico and uh, right even by Halifax and all of that, just doing all types of ASW type of work. A year later, on June 2nd, we left Newport for six months and went to Bahrain. Saudi Arabia was our home port. So almost a year to the day from the sinking of the Liberty, we were in Bahrain all over the Persian Gulf showing the American flag with another destroyer. Thank you. Our Navy and Marine Corps, from a dynamic and incomparable sea service team, from 1965 to 1975, nearly 500,000 Marines served in Southeast Asia. To offer a reflection on his Marine Corps service during the Vietnam War, we are pleased to have joining us a local veteran who, after graduation from Norwich Technical High School on June 25, 1967, enlisted in the United States Marine Corps the very next day, June 26, 1967. By December of 1967, he was serving in Vietnam and was wounded there in 1969. After recovering and returning home, he was discharged from the Marines in August of 1969. Please join me in welcoming Thomas Brown. A friend of mine who didn't make it home from Vietnam, uh, we got together and we are going to join the Marine Corps. We're going to go in a delayed program. We joined and we wouldn't have to go in until September, so we had planned the whole summer of chasing girls and, uh, and hopefully catch some. But he got in a little argument with his parents and hurried up and joined. And he says to me two days before, he says, you going into service with me? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you better hurry. So I had to hurry and catch up with him. I get to Vietnam, 
and I'm stationed with 1-1 in Da Nang. My job title was a mortarman. I was an 81-millimeter mortarman. Within one month of being in Vietnam, the Tet Offensive, 1968 Tet Offensive starts. I'm on the first helicopter that landed in Way City during the Tet Offensive. We had to fight our way to the MACV compound, which was in the newspapers and on TV every day, from what I'm told by my parents, because Walter Cronkite's crews were there. It was, um, as I say to my friends, one hell of a place to play during the Tet Offensive. On day 10, FO for the Charlie Company was killed, and I was sent to be an FO. So I left the mortar crew for about uh, a month, and I was a forward observer. I called in artillery, called in lots of artillery, 81s, 105s, 155s, 8-inch. I called naval and air. I got really good at it. We left Way City at the end of the Tet Offensive. I went back to being a mortarman, and we were sent up to the north to Quezon. I was on Hill 881 South, which is another very famous hill. Uh, I was an FO and a mortarman up there. I got to call in the New Jersey and told I'm one of the only enlisted men to call in the New Jersey. That was an officer's job. We didn't have an officer on the hill. So we left the hill and my outfit was offered different jobs because we were, we got the hell beat out of us. So I picked a job in a civic action program. I looked at the list and I said, what's that? And a civic action program. I said, oh, those are the guys who were on the bridges swimming and with all the women around them? Yeah. I said, that's the job for me. <laughs> I went into the civic action program. We trained the South Vietnamese villagers, the lowest military in Vietnam. They were called popular forces. We trained them to protect their village, ran patrols during the day. We ate, we swam, and at night we went in the ring like gladiators because the communists liked to mess with small groups instead of big, big groups. I was with them, and I thought it was a privilege to be with the South Vietnamese people. They were a a great bunch of people. All I wanted to do was raise rice and have families. I got pictures of me with a whole line of people behind me were squatted down and they're picking through my hair looking for lice as I'm guarding a road, road guard station. On one of the, our patrols, I was wounded. There was a, we got a call on a radio. There was a mortar, communist mortar hitting Hill 55, where President Johnson's son-in-law was there on Hill 55. So they said, anybody in the area, can you respond? And it was me, another Marine, and six South Vietnamese farmers with guns. So we went after this mortar, and we found it. And luckily, I was the only one wounded, you know, because we were silly. We should have never went after that mortar. But I was wounded, sent to Da Nang. I spent a couple of months in Japan, which I loved, and I got out of the Marine Corps a few months later. So people say, what, what was your tour in, in the service? I say, I went through training, I went to Vietnam, and I was in a hospital. That was the end of it. So thank you very much. Approximately 1.7,336,000 U.S. Army soldiers and 293 U.S. Air Force airmen served during the Vietnam War. 
to offer a reflection on his service during the Vietnam War, we're pleased to have joining us a local veteran who served in the Air Force and later after the war continued his service in the U.S. Air National Guard and Reserves. So please join me in welcoming Dennis Lease. I'm going to take you back a couple of years, and I say a couple of years because it makes me feel younger by just saying a couple of years. I was a peace-loving hippie. I had long hair down to my shoulders, and uh, I just turned 18 and just started my second semester at college. I was majoring in computers, and I said, eh, I really don't know if that's what I want to do. But I also knew my number would be coming up at some point. So what I did is I immediately went to a Navy recruiter. And I says, hey, I'm learning about computers. Do you have computers in the Navy? Yes, we do. That's good. He goes, but you got to sign up for six years. No, thank you. <laughs> so I left. So then I thought, well, the Air Force must have computers. So I went to the Air Force recruiter. And he says, yes, we do. So he goes, all you got to do is do this, this, make sure you get a score on the test. So I said, okay, let me finish at least the semester that I'm in, or maybe even at least my first year of college, and I'll be back to talk to you. Well, I guess the Air Force doesn't take no, because a week later, I'm in school one day, and the next evening, I'm sitting in San Antonio, Texas at basic training. <laughs> Not good. have no idea what happened, but it happened. I was just a dumb 18-year-old that when they called and they said go, I didn't have the nerve to say, but I haven't signed anything. <laughs> and then I still ended up going. So I get to basic training, and I find out, everybody in the military knows you fill out the dream sheet. So you're getting close to leaving basic training, you pick your job. So when I got the sheet, there was computer jobs. So I said, oh, good, I can pick that. The guy goes, no, you can't. I said, what do you mean I can't? That's why I'm here. He goes, you didn't take the test in basic training, so you can't take that. Great. What do I do now? So he started asking me questions. One of the questions was, do you have any other language that you speak? Well, I'm from Canada. So I said, well, I'm fluent in French. I can read it, write it. Wrong thing to say. I did not know Vietnam was French. Did anybody else know that? I didn't. <laughs> so next thing you know, I get my orders. Military intelligence. Oh, boy. Those two words don't go together, by the way. But anyways, I get my orders. The night before basic training, we're all happy. We're celebrating in the barracks. And I get told, I get a squawk box comes on that tells me my orders are canceled. They're sending me to transient barracks. Wait for further orders. I get there. A week and a half later, I get my orders. Security police. Basically, the Air Force military police. Okay, whatever. It was either that or a cook. I didn't want to be a cook. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I love eating, but nah. So anyway, so I turn around, go to school. As soon as we got to school, they came and announced that my class was going to Vietnam. Great. The little care package I got with the little New Testament book. Every day I start reading that. Please, please. I, I stopped swearing. Actually, they called me Goma Pile because I'd go to swear. God, golly. <laughs> And next thing you know, I became Goma Pyle. But anyways, so at the end of the school, I get orders, one-year tour, Tonsonwood Air Base, Vietnam. Anyways, so the Navy, I mean the Navy, here I am in the Navy. The Air Force kept kind of putting it to, putting it to me, putting it to me, putting it to me. Well, finally after that, I got orders, and my orders actually said, you are now being assigned to the United States Air Force, honor God, Washington, D.C. Really? Me? At that time, the only people there in the honor guard were security policemen. That's how I got chosen. Plus, 6'3", had the perfect weight. You had to be a certain height. You got to look impressive. Even though the president was this tall, I had to be a little bit taller than he was. So I get there, I go through the training, and I get assigned to the White House. So now that's what I did until I got out of the Air Force. I worked in the White House, did some wonderful things. I went to uh, 
Texas, did death watch and the funeral for LBJ. I met his family. I went to Missouri, did death watch and the uh, funeral for uh, Harry Truman. And then I stayed at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. and did the death watch for J. Edgar Hoover. And yes, he was wearing a dress, because a lot of people asked me that. And it's like, it was just strange, but anyways. And then I was also, the biggest thing I think that was my career topper was I was at the White House, and I was there for the largest dinner ever put on at the White House. And that's when the POWs came back. And it was so nice to be there with them and see what they had gone through. I met John Wayne, his wife. I met Miss January of Playboy. I wasn't married yet, so that was, I didn't break any rules. <laughs> but it was great. So that's how I ended up, and I came back to civilian life after I ended up. And no, I was not involved in Watergate. Although that question came up, because I'm a retired state police detective, that question came up during my whole board, believe it or not. <laughs> but anyway, so that's basically my, my story, what I did through this, you know, the time. But that's it. Well, I'm glad I made it through without really crying, because sometimes I have problems talking about this. But I thank you very much for being here. So we're pleased uh, that our featured speaker traveled from Torrington to the home of the submarine force to be with us. Retired Major Daniel M. Edinger is the Regent Commander for the Region 1 of the Military Order of the Purple Heart. Dan joined the Army in 1965 and served the Old Guard at Fort Myer, Virginia, before leaving for Vietnam in 1967. Dan received two wounds in country during the 1968 Tet Offensive. Recovered and undeterred, he continued his service to his country and retired in 1992 after 26 years in the U.S. Army and Nebraska National Guard. Please join me in welcoming home retired Major Dan Ettinger. I was raised on a dairy farm in Nebraska, and uh, I did everything I could to get away from that farm. <laughs> so I joined the Army. And my friends, Irvington, Nebraska, by the way, is population 36 and unincorporated. And when I joined the Army, my friends went out and crossed off the sign. Said, oh, it's 35 now. So I, I joined the Army uh, after four years of high school, uh, ROTC, and it was Army ROTC. So I was brainwashed. I knew I had to join the Army. But it's good to be back on a naval base. And the reason for it is, is my true father was 33 years in the Navy. He retired out at St. Mary's, Georgia, and he's uh, at rest at St. Mary's, Georgia, but he was uh, on a sub-tender. I think his enlisted rank was BMC. He was the uh, bosun mate chief. And then he went crazy and decided he uh, was going to retire as a, a chief warrant. So that's what he did. And uh, unfortunately, we lived in Guam, we lived in Japan, we lived in Hawaii, we lived at San Diego, uh, Norfolk. I was born in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. So when people ask, where are you from? Boy, I don't know. <laughs> All over the place. As we move through our lives, we step across different paths. We walk with different people. We learn new ideas and new things. When I got into the actual army and, and was asked to become part of the old guard, I said, what are my chances of getting to Vietnam? And they said, oh, really good. Once you're with the honor guard, you know, you're, you're pretty well set. Well, that was fine until 1960, 
67, 66 came along, and a big levy from the Pentagon came down. I was walking the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at the time, and the Pentagon sent a big levy down. They said, anybody who has 11 Bush, which is infantry, MOS, and anybody that has 11 months or 12 months or more left in service, you're going to Vietnam. And they didn't send us as a unit. Each one of us individually got sent over different periods of time. And I was enlisted at the time. I was enlisted for 12 years before I went crazy and went to the officer corps. Um, I shouldn't say crazy because some people call it the dark side. But in any case, there's a lot to learn on both the enlisted side and the officer side. I did retire a major. I had an opportunity to be lieutenant colonel when Desert Storm came along. Already had two Purple Hearts. Said, no, don't think I want to go to Desert Storm. So I stayed at home and we trained uh, EFMB, Expert Field Medical Badge. We trained the guys that are gonna, and ladies who are going into the medical field before they went to Kuwait, how to become good medical people and what type of a situation they were going to get into. So that was a very interesting career. And at that time, I was not medical. I was put in as an executive officer for a medical company in a forward support battalion. I had no idea what it was like to be a medical person. They work hard. They seriously work hard. But uh, it, was, it was good to be an XO. It's kind of like being ready to go but not quite there yet. At the same time, happy to be there and learning a lot. But I need to remind you of where the Vietnam veteran comes from. All stages of our country, all stages of the U.S. There are people in, that went to Vietnam that were recruited. There were people that went there that were drafted. There were people that went there from colleges and universities. We had doctors, lawyers, you name it, they came from America and they served for America. Now what we call the Purple Heart is, we, you can call it the slow badge. Couldn't get out of the way fast enough, got injured. You can call it the non-electrical pop-up target. You can call it the Vietnamese bullseye. Nonetheless, injuries from war, from an enemy of the United States, it's not an award. It is a receiving the medal of a Purple Heart. It's got your name on the back of it, so it's not given to everybody. And it's, it's an appreciation of your country for your service. Now, the Vietnam veterans have lived a long time with a little black cloud over their head. They were spit on when they came back. There was no good welcome home committees. But we have stood up. And we said, this will never happen again. It's the Vietnam veterans who have made these homecomings what they are today. We don't allow the American public to put down what we went out to serve for. And to bring you back to reality, I remember a firefight. And in your mind, what goes back through your head is from the first shot, what happened all the way through to where you are. And out of the end of your rifle, you see a little piece of smoke coming up and the smoke is cut by a breeze that brings you back to where you are. And the question in the mind becomes, was that the sigh 
of the Grim Reaper, or was that the breath of an angel's kiss? And I submit to you today, our Vietnam veterans that are home today have been kissed by an angel. Keep that in mind. You don't have to worry about that little cloud over your head anymore because it's not there. We're proud to have been servers of the United States Armed Forces for our country, the USA. Thank you. Come and celebrate the grand opening of the Art Eastern Connecticut's new cookie factory. Discover why people can't get enough of our classic crunch chocolate chip cookies. Visit the cookie factory at 22 Route 171, Woodstock, Connecticut, and support us as we walk in partnership with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The Ark's classic crunch chocolate chip cookie, more than just a great cookie. Visit thearkect.com and find out more. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. After weeks of student and faculty protests at Connecticut College and the school's president, Catherine Bergeron, has said she will leave. In a school-wide letter sent recently, Bergeron said she will step down at the end of the current semester. Her last day will be June 23rd. Virginia Anderson is an associate professor of theatre at the college and says Bergeron's departure is part of a much wider problem. I find myself a bit surprised, perhaps, in that... This brings no relief to me that I know that the problems that have been raised, they've been longstanding. Our board of trustees has been aware of them for some time. This goes so far beyond one person. Chris Steiner is a professor of art history and anthropology at the college and says there's still the thorny question of how much Bergeron's departure will cost the college. When President Gaudiani resigned from Connecticut College in 2001, the large size of her severance package became a really lively topic of conversation and angered a lot of people at the time, especially as the college entered financial uncertainty in 2001, and we potentially are leading into financial uncertainty right now. Meanwhile, students from the college have been reacting to the resignation announcement. Sam Maidenberg is a student at the college and co-editor of the official student newspaper, The College Voice, and said as everyone returned from spring break, her resignation has already sparked many questions from students. Will she be speaking at graduation at the end of the semester? You know, how are her duties to the college and how will we begin the work of starting a new administration with better goals and better initiatives while she's still here? I think there's still a lot of questions that are left unanswered, but I think it's generally what students have been asking for is being addressed. Maidenberg says students feel that Bergeron's letter failed to acknowledge her shortcomings that were highlighted by faculty and staff about her management style and alleged bullying behaviour. Students also felt the Board of Trustees' letter to the school failed to acknowledge the school's wider problems and painted an overly positive picture of Bergeron and her time at the school. The United States Coast Guard Women's Leadership Initiative held a health symposium at the Coast Guard Academy in New London to mark Women's History Month in March. Lieutenant Shirley Pilkey is the co-chair of the initiative and reaffirmed its mission and purpose. For equality, justice and opportunity in our nation. We also reaffirm our commitment to advancing rights and opportunities for all women and girls everywhere. We are mindful that we are building on our legacy of trailblazers and all women who have guided the course of American history and continue to shape its future. Connecticut's Lieutenant Governor Susan Bysowitz was one of the keynote speakers at the event and reminded the attendees how important women leaders and their roles are in society and as role models to others. 
The symposium's focus was on women's health and heard from expert speakers such as the Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, Nancy Navaretta, who spoke about the state's opioid response efforts to discussions on mental health services and peer support within the military. And the world of orthodontics is being given the AI treatment courtesy of a dental clinician at UConn. Dr. Madhur Upade is an associate professor of orthodontics at UConn School of Dental Medicine and has created a special learning algorithm to help when fitting patients with braces. Upade says the AI has an advantage over a human operator with its wider knowledge and lack of bias. It's very good of going through data and accumulating and synthesizing all that knowledge very crisply and outlining the essential facts and then using that information for data interpretation and analysis and finally the diagnosis. All this process, if it is automated, it becomes quick, it becomes more robust, and it is very consistent. The AI has taken several years to develop, learning from thousands of pieces of data. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 